uh, resume here. And uh, your first reaction is going to be that the moderator has had a change of appearance over lunch. Um, thank you. Um, the fellow says that he's very good looking, the new moderator. Anyway, uh, your moderator, Cameron, was called away uh, to a work situation around negotiations with the city. And uh, so I've agreed to uh, moderate the question and answer period. So in a moment, I'll call the speaker forward. But I just want to uh, let you know what's on tap for next week. That's right. My name is Terry Shillington. Uh, a few of you will know that. And my real advisor and supervisor is back there at uh, the back table. Anyway, the, the topic for next Thursday, why are only a few people building energy efficient uh, net zero houses? So we're gonna explore uh, energy efficient housing and uh, why we're not making headway with that. Pardon? Okay, is anybody hearing what I'm saying? Uh, energy efficient housing next week. The speaker is Rudy Regeer, owner and president of Energy Smart Canada and Arctic Spas Lethbridge. <clears throat> so that's for next week. I'll call uh, uh, Mark of Hislop forward and invite you to have Adam. Uh, and there's already a couple of people lined up. So uh, go, go for it. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Maria Fitzpatrick, and I'm the NDP candidate for Lethbridge East, oh, hi, and Maria. had been the MLA for the last four years till the rift dropped. So uh, I have to tell you that was a phenomenal presentation. Well, thank you. Uh, and I wish it had been another hour or two long, so I could have heard more, but. Uh, for me, uh, I'm out on the doorstep, and uh, when I meet oil workers who are angry with me because they're not getting the hours or uh, they're going to lose their job, uh, I'd like to engage them in a conversation about where they could go for the transitional jobs that are coming and the jobs that will uh, be there for the future. Uh, and I've certainly talked about, and our platform includes uh, um, conversation about the curriculum review to prepare our kids for 10, 20, and 30 years from now. How do I um, get that message across to young men who are working in the oil field and we're making 150 grand, and now that is not happening? Uh, they certainly don't realize that those jobs were going before ever we were elected. But I want those young men to have jobs in the future. And I want any direction that I can get to share with our caucus to make sure they're able to move into those kinds of uh, employment opportunities. Because grade eight uh, was the first time I ever had a computer in school. Yeah, Okay. and things have changed, yeah. So I think the question is, uh, Maria wants to know what she can tell uh, young oil field workers who are accustomed to having a, a rather nice paycheck and that maybe is not quite as, the, pay, the paycheck envelope is not quite as thick as it used to be and uh, is it coming back? 
And that, that's a very good question. So let me give you some of the information that I've gleaned from experts that I've interviewed. So a fellow named uh, Dr. Uh, Krishnamurti, Rash, I, I can't remember his first name, Krishnamurti. He's the chief energy officer at the University of Houston. And he's an expert on this chain of technology change in oil and gas. And he said that from now on, every job in the oil patch is going to have data attached to it. Data, data, data. It's all about data. And so for the last 20, 30 years, oil, oil uh, and gas producers have been putting sensors on all kinds of equipment and getting information, data from downhole, and they've got millions and millions and millions of these data points, but it's only in the last, say, three to five years that we've had the software that can, and the computers that can crunch all of that data and now give advice, either give advice to the, to the uh, uh, operator or actually make the decisions, the computer makes the decision itself. But here's the point that Dr. Krishnamurti made. He said, it's no, we are not replacing oil field workers with 22-year-old IT graduates. Deep industry knowledge is still really, really critical. It's all about taking people with deep industry knowledge and experience and reskilling them, giving them different skills that they can then take to their job and they can do, they can move from working on the floor of the rig into the trailer beside the rig because they know how all that process works. They know what, what's going on down hole, all of that sort of thing. So, Maria, I guess the, the point, uh, the, the advice I would give you is to tell these young men to start looking for opportunities to upgrade their skills and to look forward and to reskill themselves around uh, artificial intelligence. That, and I want to tell you a little story. This is really interesting. Husky Energy is one of the big five in the in oil and gas production in in uh, Alberta. And I interviewed a fellow named uh, Jason Henschliff, and he's their director of their innovation group. So he's the guy that's responsible for creating a disruptive culture within that big bureaucratic corporation. He told me that they are now going to teach every employee in the Husky head office how to do their own artificial intelligence coding so that they can automate their own workflow. So what that means is, and he, just, he compared it to the Excel spreadsheet in the 1990s, where suddenly instead of doing things with a pencil, you are now doing things on a computer with a spreadsheet. He said it's going to be just like that. And once we get everybody taught these skills, they're going to create their own little bots and their own little apps and their own little programs that can automate themselves, automate their work, and then increase their productivity. And my guess is that the fellows that you're talking to are seeing their jobs disappear, uh, the kind of jobs where you're doing things, and they need to put themselves in a position where they can supervise software and machines doing things. And so maybe it might be going back to school, it might be, I have no idea, you know, the specifics of it, but in general, I think that's the direction we're going, from doing to supervising software and machines doing. Okay, we'll maybe yes, take sir. the next question. Uh, Mike McKaig, uh, very good presentation, I really appreciate it. I have. <clears throat> One thing I, I wanted to, you to mention, 
because I follow you, I know what you say when people ask you who's paying you. So <laughs> I'd like you to comment on that. But secondly, I'd like you to comment on this idea of turning our oil into pucks so that it can be transported on the oh, rail. Oh, sure, catapucks, yeah. This is very interesting. Um, as the debate over oil and gas gets polarized, it gets a lot more vicious out there on social media, which is where we have a lot of our discussions. And I'm a fairly stern critic of Vivian Krauss, who you may, many of you may have heard of. And, and so Vivian's response, of course, is to question how I make my money. Like I'm bought and paid for by Tides Canada or the, these environmental charities that are funding the anti-pipeline activists on the West Coast. And the idea, of course, is to undermine my credibility as an independent journalist. And so I get asked this all the time, is who pays my bills? And the answer is subscribers, and that would be like Barb and Barb Phillips and Mike McCaig are very generous and help support us. And that's the first uh, source of revenue. The second is, is speaking. I actually get paid to speak and stand up and speak in groups of trade shows and conventions and things like that. And then the third is we do writing contracts for uh, oil companies and other organizations. We basically offer a fee for service. And we have not received a single penny from the Alberta New Democrat Party or from the Alberta government in all the years that I have been working in this in, as an online journalist. That's over 10 years now. So we are not bought and paid for it. I know why Mike brought that up because he, he, uh, he and Barb follow me on Facebook and, and Twitter and uh, I get that thrown at me a lot, as, uh, yeah, but it's not true. So thanks, good question, Mike. And Sorry, what was the second one? Oh yes, the Canapucks, sorry about that. Um, uh, so the Canapucks is basically you take these, uh, you take bitumen and you, and you uh, I think they have to treat it with something and they put a little skin around it and it, it's a puck about like this and about this thick. And the idea is that instead of you know, having to put 30% uh, diluent, a light hydrocarbon, into it to get it into a pipeline, now you've basically created a puck that you could put in a, in a, a rail car and you can ship it that way. So. Uh, not only is it, uh, you don't have to worry about building pipelines, you have more flexibility, but if, let's say that you have a derailment and these pucks wind up you know, spilling out into the environment, then the, all they're going to do is basically, they don't flow because they're very thick, and you just bring in a front-end loader and scoop them up, and that's how you clean them up. So CN uh, has, I think, I think they've actually bought the company, the, this can of pucks company, and they've been doing some uh, pilot projects, and it, I, I would expect that either this year or next year we're going to see it move into commercial production. And so we can begin to move bitumen uh, to the West Coast by rail without having to have another pipeline. Maybe in coal cars. <laughs> Maybe in coal cars, good point. So anyway, that's the, uh, you know, I made the, I made the point during my, during my talk about how you know, Alberta's very innovative, and, and I, I say that all the time, is that we don't tell these stories enough. And one of the reasons we don't tell them enough is because the industry doesn't like to talk to, they don't like to talk to media. And this is, we're, so we're in a really odd position where we really need to tell these stories outside of Alberta. And, I'll and I want to tell you a little story to illustrate that point. So on May 2nd, 2017, uh, I was uh, debating Dr. Gordon Cornwall of the BC Green Party in the Vancouver Public Library. 
And if you can imagine it, it's a room about this size, and it's about, you know, maybe this, well, I think it was actually more people. There's about 150 Green Party members, and over in a little corner over here was my wife and four of my friends. So I was, uh, I was, for, I was defending Alberta, the oil sands and the pipeline, and, and Dr. Cornwall was, uh, was uh, the anti-side. And poor Dr. Cornwall uh, did all of his research on Google and didn't have any of that deep industry knowledge, didn't know anything, and I mopped the floor with him. And I felt bad. He's a very nice guy. But I mopped the floor with him. But my whole point of it was I gave him, I gave those Green Party folks basically the same story I told you today. You know, energy transition, Alberta's decarbonizing, Alberta is taking, uh, you know, is, is shutting down coal plants. We're doing all these things to take carbon out of the economy, and therefore Alberta has earned the moral right to ship its oil to market off the West Coast. We are, so there's 10 million barrels a day of oil produced in the world, heavy crude oil. We produce 3 million barrels. We're the big boys in the, in the market. No other jurisdiction decarbonizes its heavy crude. Not Venezuela, not Mexico, not Brazil, not Russia, not Iran, nobody. Only Alberta. And so my question always to the Robert, to the Dr. Cornwalls and the Zipporah Bermans is, why would you punish the good guys? Why would you want us to cut back? If anything, you should ask Alberta to expand its production push some of these other dirty oil players out of the market and you'd have a net benefit to the client, or to the climate, sorry. So I argue in my book that what we need to be is not, you know, Jason Kenney talks about we need to stop being <coughs> passive and we need to be more aggressive. Well, the most aggressive thing you can do is go out and talk to British Columbians, tell them all the wonderful things that Alberta is doing, get them on side and say, look, the best thing for the climate over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years is more Alberta crude oil, decarbonized crude oil. Let's go build some pipelines. In my conclusion, I propose a Western Energy Corridor from either Fort McMurray or Edmonton to the Prince Rupert, the deepest port in, in Canada. And we build as many pipelines as we need to on that corridor. First Nation-owned corridor, I might add. The Eagle Spirit Energy Company has been working for five years signing up the 31st, 31 First Nations along that corridor, they are signed up and ready to go. They are ready to be participants. There's currently a, uh, a, a group of First Nations getting together to buy 51% of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project. It's called Project Reconciliation. And I spoke to one of their technical uh, advisors, uh, Professor Harry uh, Riedenberg. If first, if we have, if we can't fix our problems with First Nations on through consultations, then invite them onto the board table, invite them to be owners, co-owners, and that's the way we think we can fix this problem. Okay, can we pick up some of the other questioners? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize. My, my apologies, no sir. Problem. I, I get off on a tangent, and away I go. So, <laughs> I do the same thing. Dwight Perry. And uh, you answered one of my questions already uh, regarding the pucks. I'm really interested in would Quebec let pucks go across so that they could use Alberta oil for their fuel? Quebec has no damn choice. <laughs> no, okay. I, I mean, I'm serious yeah. about that. The, 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 the transportation of, of uh, hazardous chemicals uh, on by rail is covered by, a, I, I think it's actually called the Hazardous Chemicals Act. Mm -hmm. 
and and it doesn't it, it recovers oil it covers any kind of hydrocarbon it would cover uh, uh, bitumen and pucks and there's absolutely nothing they can say about it they can they can have some they, and they really don't have any say whether we build a pipeline through Quebec they can only bring the kind of pressure on the federal government that the BC government put on mm -hmm. on Ottawa. Yeah. So because in reality, I'd sooner see the Energy East pipeline rather than the uh, Trans Mountain, just because then our oil is being used in Canada, refined in the fuel, and uh, that premier will be burning Alberta oil in his car. See, I, so I appreciate I appreciate the sentiment. Here's the problem, folks, because. Eastern Canada burn, it uses about 700,000 barrels of oil, uh, of oil a day, and 52% of it comes from the U.S., 15% comes from Saudi Arabia, and then the rest of it comes from other, like Nigeria and U.K. and, and so on. The problem is, and this was, these numbers were given to me by Dr. Alan Fogwell of the Canadian Energy Research Institute. He said, look, the Irving refinery in New Brunswick can, can buy a, a barrel of Saudi Arabian oil for 54 bucks, and it can buy a barrel of Western Canadian oil for 61 bucks. It just costs us so much more to ship it by pipeline from you know, all that great long distance. If we get it, if we took the shorter route to the west coast, say 1,000 kilometers roughly, once you get it on a boat, man, you can get it there for like two bucks a barrel. It's, being on a boat on the water is tremendously cheap. And that's why the Saudi Arabians can serve the, the Eastern Canadian market economically, and we can't because we pipeline costs are much higher. Thank I'm, afraid, you. I'm afraid it's just basic economics. Okay, next question. Hi, my name is Lori Schultz, and thank you very much for... <clears throat> Hi, my name is Lori Schultz, and thank you very much for a really wonderful um, oh. presentation. Um, so, uh, my question is... I'll, I'll preface it first. As you've alluded to, any time I or others attempt to have a conversation about the pipeline or whatever, particularly with family, friends who work in that industry, um, I seem to hit a wall with the, the point that is brought up that, hey, prior to the NDP government, that we were doing it right. It was, you know, it's the current government that's really causing the issues. And so my question is this, and I'll try to articulate this. <clears throat> Prior to 2014, the last bust, which is, was more than a typical bust because of the, the transition, but in the, in the 10 years prior, or even in the last five years prior, what could the government have done, and I guess also industry, to have lessened the blow in 2014? Like to me, diversification of the economy, when I think back, I'm, I remember thinking, here we are again in a bus stand. Where, what have we done to diversify the economy to, to have a bit of a net? But what could have been done, or maybe, if anything, in the last five to 10 years prior to this last bust, that could have left us or brought us in a better place in 2014 than we were? Thank you. Thanks. Well, that, that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so um, I think the way I'll attack the, uh, that question, I'll respond to it, 
is, is to point out conversations that I've had with energy economists. And I asked them the question, especially while I was doing inter interviews for the book, and I said, my take on this, Mr. Economist, is that um, the Alberta oil and gas sector went into 2014 with, it was one kind of an industry. And when it emerged from the, the bust two years later in 2017, it really looked a lot different. And they go, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And what they mean by that is that the Alberta barrel has very often been what's called a marginal barrel, and that's only, it's only economic when prices are high. It's not a competitive barrel, like the Saudis are a competitive barrel, so that they're economic. You can always make a profit regardless of what, what the price is. And what the bust, the, the companies looked at this, at what happened in 2014, 2015, then into 2016, and they said the lesson for us is that we now have to be more efficient, we have to be much lower cost, and we have to change from being a marginal barrel to a competitive barrel. So they drove down costs and they adopted new technologies that made them more efficient, and they're going to be doing that more and more and more over the next little while. So just as an example, uh, there, you hear about the Permian Basin all the time, and down in West Texas, how prolific it is and how, well, the best oil sands producers now are produce an, a barrel of oil for about what it costs the best Permian producers to produce a barrel of oil. But we actually have an advantage over them because in the oil sands, you spend all your money up, you spend a tremendous amount of money, billions and billions and billions, building all these facilities and infrastructure and all that stuff up in northern Alberta. But the cost, once that's built, the actual cost to produce the oil is very low. Whereas in the Permian Basin, these shale basins, if you looked at the decline curve for a well, it goes way up for a year and then it falls off a cliff. And what that means is they have to spend tremendous amounts of capital drilling new wells all the time. And so they never, they, they always have, they will always be high cost and the oil sands is becoming really uh, more and more low cost all the time. So that's, that, that's, oh sorry, I just want to, but you asked me the question about what we could have done. <coughs> as, as we move forward, the only thing that lies ahead of us, in my opinion, is one, get more value for, through non-combustion uses like petrochemicals. The other is the tremendous amount of technology and, that we produce here and we develop here has applications in other markets and in other industries. And that's, I think, a mistake that the government, no government, whoops, sorry, no government has considered that yet is having a technology diversification strategy because there are already firms who could benefit from growing markets in other places or other industries. So I think that would be my answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, very interesting. Art Sanford and um, uh, I have a son, by the way, who works in senior management in the oil business. He's right now in Norway but he covers a lot of Africa too. Um, when you were speaking and you were telling us how these five billion dollar corporations went to government and said, we want to pay more taxes, my first reaction is, what was the motive? Because I've never yet seen a corporation, and I was a business owner for years, and you never vote yourself more taxes. 
So that's something to think about. Now, the other question I'm going to ask you, because there are a lot of people seem to think that oil is going to be disappearing from the marketplace. And I have a firm believer that 100 years from now, we'll still be pumping oil. But I'd like to see what your reaction is to the long term for oil use. Sure. Well, those are, two again, two big questions. But I'm, I'm happy. I actually address them, both of them in the book. So I'm, I'm happy. So the question is, uh, why do the oil sands uh, companies, like all the, the major oil companies, favor a carbon, a carbon tax? Is because what they, what they uh, uh, believe is that the application of a carbon tax, which then gets recycled back into a fund that's, that helps to fund their innovation, it makes them more efficient. And so there was a, there's a, a VP of technology at Synovus, which is one of the big companies. His name is Harbir China. And he's been around for a long time. He's the godfather, basically, of SAG-D production. And we had this conversation. And he said, look, our industry prior to 2014 was very, very inefficient. We spent a lot of money getting the oil, finding the oil, building these facilities, and getting, it, getting first oil out of, out of the ground. He said, what this does, by giving us a little bit of an increase in our costs, it gives us an incentive to lower those costs, to basically burn less natural gas to create steam, and then we either, we pay no, we, we, if we're really efficient, like Synovus is, we actually get a credit, and then that incentivizes us to develop new technology all the time to continue to be more and more efficient. So they don't see it as a tax, as a tax that actually, um, goes into general revenues and gets spent, they see it as a market signal that encourages them to become more efficient by developing new technologies. The fact that it's called a carbon tax is probably a misnomer, and I'm sure there's an economist someplace who is kicking himself forever calling it a, you know, naming it a carbon tax in the first place. But I can tell you for a fact that all of those companies favor carbon pricing as a way to improve their efficiencies. And it's really important to understand that as their emissions come down, so do their costs come down. And so Steve Williams, the CEO at Suncor, talks all the time about being cost and carbon competitive. So, uh, and then the second one is, okay, so the, the demand for oil. This is a very uncertain time, and this is not uncommon in the, in the uh, evolution of new technologies where the technologies are just beginning to climb up what we call the S-curve. So if you look, if you plotted the adoption of a, uh, of a, the adoption of a technology from the time it got introduced to the market to the time it gets to be 100%, it would look like this. It would be an S-curve. So when you're at the bottom of the S-curve, only the innovators and the early adopters buy it because it's not as, the technology is not as good. And the electric vehicles, so oil, 60% of oil is consumed for, in transportation, right? So cars and trucks and what have you. Electrification of transportation is the only threat to oil that's used for transportation. Will we have electric vehicles tomorrow displacing all of that oil? No, that is not going to happen. But there are some disruptions waiting in the wings that could significantly compress the timelines required for adoption of electric vehicles. One of them is uh, battery technology. Uh, there are uh, chemistries now being developed in the labs that 10 years from now could uh, propel a Mo Tesla Model S for 10,000 kilometers between charges. 
and that would be and all at the same time driving down the cost of batteries and the cost of the vehicles. Will the, we see these new batteries? We don't know. So there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. But the point that the oil sands companies make is that because it's so uncertain, I mean, in, in 2007, who imagined that the iPhone would kick off the smartphone revolution and that 10 years later in 2017, there would be 6.5 billion iPhones on, in, on the planet? So from zero in 2007 to 6.5 billion in, in just a decade. So the oil sands companies, all oil comp the big oil companies say, look, we need to hope for the best, that we're going to have a demand for our product long term, but we have to plan for the worst. And we have to, the only way we can do that is by driving down costs and driving down emissions. So might there be oil, you know, being, well, might we be using the same amount of oil in 20, uh, 2119? Yes, sure, you could argue that. There's lots of data and lots of arguments for that. The odds are that that's not going to happen. We'd, so if I was a betting man, I would bet that it's not. But anyway, sorry I can't be any more definitive than that, but such is life. Okay, uh, I'm going to exercise the moderator's privilege here to insert a quick question before we get to the next questioner. Yes, sir. Namely, it was news to me until I got here today that Alberta has developed technology around reducing carbon content in oil. Can you say a little bit about that? Are we, are we, uh, is this technology removing 10% of carbon or 50% or? Yeah, sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, so right now, a lot of the, the really uh, carbon intense heavy crudes that are, that are uh, extracted out of the oil sands have somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 kilograms per of CO2 equivalent per barrel. The American U.S. average, uh, crude, average crude has 500 kilograms of CO2 equivalent, and the really, really light sweet crudes that you find in the Eagleford in southern Texas or the Bakken in, uh, uh, over in uh, North Dakota uh, are somewhere around 450 or 400 kilograms. So we used to be in that 600 kilogram range and the new technologies that we're seeing now such as solvent substitution have now brought that down. We are at the American U.S. crude average. So we're now down around 500 and producers think that they will be able to get it below 500. So what are the technologies? There are two major ones. On the SAG-D side it's all about substituting solvent uh, light hydrocarbon uh, to uh, for steam. So instead of instead of uh, melting uh, to, uh, the uh, bitumen to increase not melting but thinning it out using steam to to increase the viscosity, now you'll basically d dissolve it in in, in solvent uh, to thin it out and pump it to surface. The really cool stuff, the stuff that gets me excited, is on the mining side. CNRL has developed uh, a technology they call IPEP, uh, in, uh, in mine face, whatever. Basically, what it is is now when you, when you mine bitumen, you come up with a big bucket and it, the bucket scoops up the, the ore and throws it into the, one of those big ore haulers and it takes it a couple of three kilometers over to the plant. Now they have a machine that extracts it right at the mine face and then all the processing is done right there. So the bitumen gets, goes out one, one side, the tailings go out the other side, and you get tremendous, uh, you get about a $2 a barrel cost saving, and your emissions go down 17%, and, 
And the kicker for me is uh, CNRL will never, ever create another tailings pond. Okay. Ever. We, we're under some time pressure here. So yes, sir, I understand. I, I wonder if we can have... Uh, your, my question answered. Tailing ponds. Okay. Is oh, there, there you go. Then we will proceed to, towards closure. Any last comment you want to make uh, or embellishment or whatever before we uh, close? Yes. I, and I, and don't, please don't take this in a partisan way, but uh, I've made a, a point of interviewing many economists mm -hmm. who said, and they said, I asked them, is the Notley government energy policies well designed? Is it effective? And they all, and they said, yes. They said, it's very good. And why is it necessary? Because going back to this Harbir Chinna, he said, if we're going to a low carbon future, we want the longest runway possible to innovate and bring down our emissions. He said if we go backwards and we take away the carbon pricing and all those supportive policies, now you're shortening our runway. Now, if we have a big disruption that we weren't anticipating and suddenly now we have to innovate in a short runway, maybe we don't make it successfully. He said that's the problem. So roll, rolling back those policies is a very bad idea from the oil sands point of view. And that's one of the points of my book is that if there's another way to get to the objective with different policies, great. But we shouldn't just roll back and go back to the old style 1980s policies. That would be a big mistake. Here's the last question. Are copies of your book around? You know, I have a trunk full of books. <laughs> and and I, I think we were, can we, were we not talking about having some book signing after the? Sure. Yeah, so we'll do that. We'll, we'll get some books out, and I'm happy to sign. They're $20 plus GST, so $21, and happy to do that. Okay, if you want a copy of that book, then you talk to him afterwards and uh, even get a signature. Would you like to thank our speaker, please? Thank you.